0: It's so much
1: fun Not sure when this is dropping, but it is a beautiful Monday here in New York. How you doing,
0: 99? Good. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm great. Kind of a crazy weekend. A little more traveling, but back in the saddle, ready to roll. You feeling good? Yeah. Well, the first thing is I got a little bit of feedback from our buddy John Kane, who sent me a text Overall, liked the episode that we did on Governor Hochul. Did have a couple of issues. First of all, he said, I am Mohawk. And I think I called him Seneca, even though I knew that. He lives on Seneca territory. Is married to an Oneida woman, but he is Mohawk. So there's that. And he wanted to make sure specifically that I mentioned that Delaware North actually runs two Of the three racinos in the seneca exclusivity zone but that del lago is in the seneca gaming market but located just outside of that so-called exclusivity zone so they are running slots in the territory in two places and i think i said one and the full-fledged casino that they opened up right as soon as the initial 14-year agreement ended opened up right on the border of what was their exclusivity zone, but it's enough in their gaming market that it obviously draws from them. And then he said something really interesting that I wanted to bring up. He said, The irony in this Bill's Stadium bullshit is that the Senecas would have much rather purchased a stake in the new stadium than turn a dime over to Hokel or the state. So anyway, I, th- I thought that was really interesting because we don't really see these nations in these territories as potential entrepreneurial partners. So obviously we looked to our friends at Puspatak when we opened up our coffee enterprise and partnered with them because they're great at what they do. They have an entrepreneurial spirit. You have to when you're in survival mode like that with most of these nations and territories are always in that type of entrepreneurial mode. So I thought that was interesting that maybe somewhere down the road, the white culture begins to think about that type of diverse economic development when it comes to indigenous properties as well, that they could actually be partners in these enterprises. So great feedback is always from John Kane. He has a little something else here at the very end. They said, and make sure everybody knows that I'm really not rooting for Cuomo. I hate them all. It matters little, their gender, color, or party. So he wanted me to be on the record about that I appreciate his feedback and I appreciate the collaboration I hope everybody enjoyed hearing John Kane's voice on our show he is a luminary in the broadcast field he is indefatigable I mean he turns out so much product and has no interest in kind of crossing over into other political landscapes he stays so firmly in his lane that it's impressive and I I appreciate the collaboration with him so John thank you for submitting that And with that, why don't we get into some of the episode notes? And we can start by looking at some of the emails. So let's start with Elona R. I can guarantee you that on a local radio station in Kingston, this will get aired next week, talking about our gambling episode. If you had dropped this yesterday, it would have been on today's radio show. Now we'll have to wait until next week. In the meantime, I'll promote this show anywhere and every fucking where possible. She has fucked healthcare workers in her budget by making a secret deal with the 1199 workers in NYC. But that's another story. Congratulations. So Ilona obviously has some sort of radio outlet in Kingston. We appreciate the effort there. Ilona R., thank you for promoting our message up there. And yeah, what's next?
0: Jacob W. said, White people colonized this land hundreds of years ago. murdering every indigenous person in their way. And instead of us feeling remorse like any normal person would, what do we do? Help them get back some of their sacred land? Nope give them financial assistance to get a fresh start because we took everything from them? Nope. Let's just keep fucking them more with taxes and keep taking more of their land.
1: That is from Jacob W. Thank you for that, Jacob. And Mark O. Mark O sent a really long, very thoughtful email. Mark just found us through this episode because John Kane had mentioned it in one of his recent podcasts that we were doing this. And so Mark has been catching up through our catalog and and found a lot of alignment there and then sent us a tremendous book list. I'm just going to read off a couple of them. 99 and I were talking before the show that we'll go through and see if there's alignment and if we could verify some of these books uh, being worthy of making our bookshop list. But I'm going to start with just a couple that seem to be very aligned or that we've heard of that should make it into our book list. The One is by Steve Keen. It's called Debunking Economics. And Mark writes that Keen wrote an economic modeling tool called Minsky, that he has used to validate Dr. Kelton and MMT views of the economy. He is also currently running for public office in New South Wales. Get your Aussie friends to support him. Super interesting. So that's definitely one that I want to check out. He mentions also Jane Mayer, Dark Money, which we've said before. One by Yanis Varoufakis called Talking to My Daughter About the Economy. I could pretty much line up behind anything that Varoufakis writes because I'm a huge fan, but I do not have that book, so I will endeavor to get it. Another by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, Not a Nation of Immigrants, an Indigenous People's History of the United States. There's a number of other great ones, some by high profile authors here as well. But we want to take our time going through the list. But that's just a highlight of some of the books that Mark sent. And we super appreciate you doing that.
0: And then we heard from Timor S., who said, first off, I wanted to start by saying thank you to 99 for gently pushing back against building a stadium. Granted, I might not understand U.S. sports culture as much as y'all, but building new massive concrete infrastructure is never going to be sustainable or even desirable. Then Timur weighs in on compulsory voting and says he happens to be from one of the rare countries that has a mandatory voting and enforces it. I can tell you it's not all that. He's from Belgium. And what we need to know is that the northern part currently has close to 50 percent of people voting for either right wing nationalists or far right fascists. And the French part is still voting for parties and politicians that have been found guilty of fraud and embezzlement of public funds like it never happened. Then Timor closes and says the other issue with mandatory voting is the difficulty enforcing it. A financial punishment usually simply means that a crime is only a crime for the least wealthy members of a society. And it overly affects people who face additional obstacles to vote. And in Belgium, if you don't vote for a couple of elections, you end up being deregistered from the list and you can never vote again. Also feels like a pretty shitty and non-democratic thing to do. But he's curious to hear our thoughts.
1: I think we should spend a minute on this. And Timor S, thank you for sending this in. First off by acknowledging this statement that they started with, which is 99 pushing back against building a new stadium. So I thought that was one of the better, more authentic moments in the last show where we were discussing the need for a new stadium and ninety-nine going back to the beginning and saying, like, you know, you know, pause for a second here. Why do we keep doing, why can we find money for things like this, even if it's public and private, but we can't find money for core infrastructure? And what are we doing continually building new stadiums anyway? Because that really isn't a sustainable construction path going forward. And it's an interesting topic to further explore. Our need in this world in particular to to keep pushing forward, to keep blowing things up and, and doing it over again. So we brought up like Fenway Park and we brought up Wrigley and the charm of an old stadium. And But you can see these new stadiums are like, they're almost like monuments to capitalism. And it really is kind of sickening. I was so far in the weeds developing that story about the public financing part of it and how they stole the money from the native tribe that I was missing maybe the larger issue, which is, what are we doing? You know, why is this OK? And I think the answer is that it—that it's really not. So I, I just wanted to point that out and kind of build on what Timor is saying and thank 99 for pulling it back. And that's why there's two of us here is to kind of lay in that broader context and start questioning not just some of the details, because as I wrote in the title of the episode, the media lost the plot, but maybe in putting the episode together, I lost the larger plot. So thank you, uh, 99, as always, for providing that context. And the second part of Timor's email is interesting, talking about compulsory voting. So we talked about that in our Australia episode, and I thought that was really interesting that they do have such a high participation rate because it is compulsory. But we never probed the question of is that a good thing and is that something that would fly in the United States? On the latter, it is absolutely not we can't even get people to get vaccinated. So yeah, there's nothing ever compulsory that works in the United States. Nothing ever. We still maintain this this idea that we're living a, that frontier spirited life and that rugged individual and independence. That's going to be a harder characteristic to break, even if it's something related to our democracy. So the short answer is it wouldn't work here. The real question that Timor brings up here that I hadn't thought about with respect to compulsory voting is, how do you enforce it? Well, you levy a fine. That's really interesting because that makes compulsory voting regressive by levying a punishment, a financial punishment on somebody for not doing it. And in that respect, I have to say, it does seem and feel like a really bad idea and anti-democratic in the most ironic of ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, people can't even get off work to vote now. So what would happen in a situation where you're working in a big corporate warehouse that doesn't let you pee, let alone have a day off to vote? Well, that wouldn't exist. (laughs) No, of course not. And then you get a fine on top of that when you're only working that much because you can't afford to take a day off.
1: Yeah, there's so much about our structure and our system here that wouldn't lend itself to that.
0: Yeah, it actually feels like it's something that the right would weaponize. <laughs> like,
1: well, you could see it almost in terms of of how what do we call it, Obamacare or Obama or Obama or whatever it was.
0: I think it was Obamacare. Ro- maybe whatever. one of them. <laughs>
1: yeah, but in that same respect, when conservatives were trying to push universal health care, Obamacare style, the reason that they did it was because they wanted to punish poor people for accessing health care for free through emergency rooms. So they wanted to make it compulsory. The left really never wanted that. They wanted it to be available to everybody. And so I think in that same vein, the thrust of the left in the United States with voting rights is all about access. And there's a couple of really good movements. Like the, I remember a few years ago reporting on a movement called Why Tuesday? Why do we vote on a Tuesday anyway? Why wouldn't we make it on a Saturday? Why wouldn't we make it multiple days? Why wouldn't we expand the horizon like other countries or like we had to do with COVID for mail-in ballots and what have you? And hopefully we're actually going to codify that in our system and we're going to make that part of the voting system going forward. But the fact that the right is all about restricting access to the voting booths and having to raise the bar for the threshold of who can vote is all about restricting access so the i think the only approach that works within our system our economic system but also our social structure here is to just open up as much access as we possibly can because we know that there are no instances of voter fraud unless it's on the republican side which keeps coming up by the way i just saw that report last week that there was uh, some trump official had voted twice in florida like you can't make this shit up anyway so I really appreciate Timor sending that in because I think it brought up a couple of really solid points. Not everything that happens everywhere is going to be appropriate for the United States, but we should be thinking in broader terms about what it means to expand access to things like healthcare, to things like voting rights, and to know that we can do better as a democratic society without forcing people to do something. So good job, Timor. And then on to John C., John C. was talking about Midnight Oil. Peter Garrett, that was the name that escaped me when we were recording the Australian episode and talking about music. And we continue to be shamed by our listeners for not being able to pull up Australian acts off the top of our heads. But Peter Garrett of The Oils, as I guess they're referred to down under, has been fighting it out in the corners of culture and politics since the 70s with a firm focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, among a raft of other topics. So on top of the fact that Midnight Oil is an awesome band, it was such a big part of my youth. And I couldn't pull it up that day. That's interesting. Peter Garrett, the frontman for the for the oils, has been doing a lot of great work and has, I guess, since the 70s. So good stuff to know. And Auntie, 99 wanted to thank you. This is not the only one we got on this topic. Wanted to thank you for bringing out the C word.
0: You're so welcome, Anne.
1: <laughs> now I'm 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 curious now mm-hmm. that some time has elapsed between the episode and now. Mom listened yet?
0: I actually don't know. I haven't heard she might be a couple episodes behind, but like I said to you after, I said, you know, if I did say the C word in front of my mom already, I'd be worked. I'm this is who I am. <laughs> this isn't an act.
1: No, I know. Uh, <laughs> sister?
0: Oh yeah, she laughed. 101? Yeah. Oh, she loved that. She did? Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: so 101 laughed and liked it and, yeah. and applauded your- uh...
0: Of course. I'll say it loud and proud.
1: Nope, we're good. I mean, you did it, so we're fine.
0: Do you want to hear something spooky?
1: Uh, I don't know. Are you going to say the same
0: Don't act like you're afraid. You're you're trying to bait me into it. Maybe. I know you. Okay. But I didn't think of it till after, but my home address, obviously I'm not going to give the whole thing, but our address is 101. Really? Yeah, isn't that a fun synchronicity? Yes, it is. That you would name my sister 101. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now you guys can find every 101 in the country and send a letter.
1: Start narrowing a, it down in the country. Wow. Oh, now we got. Oh, here's a good one. Oh, oh no, we have we have more from Bobby later. So Bobby McD wrote in said, just to piggyback on what Anne was saying, in the occasionally lovely way that the universe balances things out. 99's liberal use of the C word especially in conjunction with twat had me laughing out loud when I listened back to the episode I I too was was laughing out loud <laughs> it, it it I don't know it just you caught me off guard and you and even though I was there for it when I listened back to it I was like what is even happening right now so good I
0: like that the people who wrote in said Bobby said the C word but said the word twat so he <laughs> there's some sort of delineation there
1: yeah yeah I have no problem saying twat
0: that's interesting. Yeah. How does that make you feel?
1: I don't. I don't know. Well, I. Hmm. So the c word is usually in this country doled out by gender. Mm-hmm. It's gendered here, whereas I feel like in other countries it's just sort of a noun.
0: I think that,
1: or an because adjective.
0: I think it's a, a harsher word than twat. Well, it's kind of like soft. Yeah. Because it's not a hard T, but the C word is like T, and then I think it feels stronger.
1: But there had to be a moment in this country when it was really weaponized.
0: I mean, it still is.
1: It is, but it had to be, as opposed to the, the countries where it's just so loosely thrown about for even your mate, mm-hmm. the C word, <laughs> I just can't get past it here where it just seems so natural in other places. I almost feel like it's been weaponized and gendered here much in the way that the N-word has been weaponized here. So that if this ma- if this makes any sense, I don't have a problem with you using it. I just can't get myself to get there.
0: That's fair. I don't know that it's comparable to the N-word. Just, I don't, I don't think, I don't know.
1: But you know what I'm saying? Like, I do, I, I understand. No, I don't I feel like I have comparison. any agency with yes. that word here in the United States.
0: That's fair. States. I just, the history of the, you know, obviously the use of the N-word, obviously much more, Vast and bad. Yes, yes. So just wanted to before people start canceling you.
1: Yeah, no, without a doubt. I, it, and and I'm saying that this is this. I feel like it's a real cultural thing here in the United States where we don't refer to other men as the c-word. Right. And so it just and it got gendered and weaponized somewhere along the way, and in a much different way than just being a funny curse word in another yeah.
0: country. We need our women women history majors to write in because like you'll call another man a pussy all the time. So,
1: and you always chastise me for that too.
0: Because pussies are strong. If I'm gonna call some, I said this to our friend the other day. I said, if I'm gonna call you something, I'm not calling you a pussy. I'm gonna call you a scrotum, because one's strong and one's weak.
1: Why, that's so true. Was I there when you said that? No, I wasn't.
0: You might have heard, you know, about the, out and about in the halls.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So a weak-willed person who shows uh, a lack of strength in a situation is more of a scrotum than a pussy. Yeah,
0: or just even balls. I mean, when you Mm -hmm. think about it, one pops out a baby, and the other one's like, Ew, I sat on myself. (laughs) (laughs) Get over it.
1: Yeah. By the way, sitting on them is like a real thing the older you get, and it's just, uh, you know. (laughs) Gross. I don't want to hear about that from you. I know. (laughs) I
0: know I said it, but ew. (laughs) Keep that away from me. (laughs)
1: Um... Then we have some general feedback from David E. You mentioned the difficulty in exporting renewable energy. Australia has huge plans to do just that. An enormous solar and wind plant is being built in the Northern Territory to connect Singapore via an undersea cable. I am utterly fucking fascinated by this and I love the unfucking community. David, thank you for sending this in. I cannot wait to learn more about this. The point that i was making in the down under episode that david is responding to is how it's difficult to transition from a fossil fuel-based economy where that is a significant part of your gdp because fossil fuels are something that you can sell and transport on the open market whereas it's more difficult to transition off of that as a business enterprise which is why the capitalist structure isn't as keen to convert over to that They're not as keen on saving and efficiencies as they are on just making net new money, even if it's from a finite resource. So the fact that Australia can get involved in exporting renewable energy is absolutely fascinating to me. I can't wait to learn more about it. David, thank you for sending that in. And Jesse T said, I'm all for a sort of writer's collective being started by some unfuckers who want to collaborate or bounce ideas back and forth. And Jesse also sent us a lot of great resources, by the way, for our upcoming religion episode, which I'm very excited about. And Jim Q weighed in on our peak oil episode. I always love when people jump in with past episodes. And there's been some commentary that I've seen recently. I don't know if we're picking up on it here today, but some discussion about whether or not it's a good idea to go and kind of start at the beginning or if you can jump right in. I'm always curious to know, I think you miss out on some of the shorthand and some of the concepts that we've, that we're building upon because we used a lot of the first year episodes as foundational building blocks and layering it in. I would say though that you can visit the show pretty much at any time and we try in show notes and we try throughout the episode to say, and by the way, a good building block episode for this, if you're interested in it, is X, Y, and Z. I'm under no illusions that every episode that we do is going to appeal to everybody. I think it appeals to kind of a core subset of our audience that's kind of interested in following the journey and, and have really, really feel like they're family and that they're part of this unfucking thing that we're doing. But if you're really just looking to learn something about a specific episode, I think that you can just dip in and dip out of unfucking the republic and then maybe go back and use some of those building blocks. So Jim Q is going back to the peak oil episode and talking about how prices have peaked over well above $4 a gallon and that he's bringing in a pito tuyo moment where the governor's solution in his state is to drop the 25-gallon tax for three months, which is fine. And coupling that with Joe Biden's release of the strategic oil reserves for six months, maybe also having a little bit of an impact on prices, but the fact that it's really not addressing the core problem overall. Before I get into Jim's next point, the one thing that I do want to revisit about that peak oil episode is that fuckers know that I don't believe that supply is the issue at all. As a matter of fact, I think it's entirely related to the markets and the commodities traders in particular juicing the prices so that they can make money on it. And when prices do begin to go down, it's going to be good because they're laying out a whole bunch of short bets that the prices are going to go down and they're just going to force it there by then prognosticating that the prices are going to go down and they'll make money going up, they'll make money going down. Because if you look at the overall trends, even with the disruption of supply coming out of Russia, we are matching the demand with the global oil production. So don't be misled with that. All you have to do is look at the international agencies that track supply and track demand. And at every stage, we're meeting demand with supply. So what does that tell you? That there's something else going on in the pricing game. There could be some fear baked into it. Fine, I get that. But it's not a supply and demand issue. So releasing the strategic reserves, if we're already meeting demand, technically doesn't do anything, right? And dropping the percent per gallon tax is a good thing. If you're looking to just save consumers some money while the commodities traders are fucking you right in the ass, that's fine. I think that's actually kind of a noble pursuit. But just understand that it has nothing to do with impacting prices. So Jim is in Connecticut, by the way. So he goes on to say that here in Connecticut, our Governor Lamont, a wealthy, quote, liberal from Greenwich, while at times seeming to be well-meaning, has repeated such neoliberal hits as, quote, if we raise taxes on the wealthy, they will leave the state, end quote. Translation, I'm not going to raise my own taxes or those of my other rich cronies. This was all uttered when a bill to cut carbon emissions was proposed by the environmental committee paid for by a tax on high priced real estate. So one of the ways in this country that we need to not just level the playing field, but also discourage bad behavior is with a carbon tax credit or a carbon use tax. Now, you know that again, i am not in favor of going after billionaires and millionaires that doesn't interest me because i think it's it's less about the individuals that manipulate the system to get there and more about this system that allows it so i always like to refocus the discussion on the system that allows for the creation of such egregious wealth in the face of inequality in this country so again If we're talking about a tax on wealthy carbon users or carbon emitters, carbon creators, I think it's a good thing because it gets to the systemic problem. But when you frame it as a tax on billionaires and the wealthy and the millionaire class, you're automatically pulling it into a class issue and taking it out of the environmental lane. And I think that that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake for progressives to attack that lane. I think it's a mistake for politicians to frame it in that way to shift the conversation. So, again interesting that this is happening on the state level and i appreciate the fact that jim went so deep into governor lamont's particular issue with respect to carbon taxing very very interesting we've kind of said before that any great reforms that will ultimately and can ultimately be adopted for the country will start at the state level harder to do it in a place like connecticut We should be doing more in a place like New York, but as you know, as you've heard me talk about before, New York is filled with faux liberals. New York is filled with classic neoliberal liberals and not enough progressives, even though we hold ourselves out there as a progressive state. We're always a decade behind California. If you're looking for true reform, look to California. And that's actually the point that I wanted to bring up about Lamont saying that people are gonna leave the state. California is the most expensive place to do business. It has the highest taxes. They're dealing with climate change, right? I mean, they're dealing head on with climate change more than probably every other state. If you live in a state and you feel differently, let me know. But probably more than every other state, they are battling climate change. And you don't see people leaving the state. Now you hear about people leaving the state because it's always so notable. Like we talked about Joe Rogan going to... Texas because, you know, I can live free, not pay as much taxes there, and I can kind of do what I want, that sort of libertarian ethos that you're just going to go to Texas and do whatever the fuck you want and walk around with your dick hanging out and and spewing oil all over the street. Okay, if that's your thing and you need to get your rocks off, great. The fact is that California still grew its population, still had the best and the biggest net migration into the state from people coming from other parts of the country. So, California is thriving economically. The problem is it's losing the battle on climate change because we have to do this all together. So we have to pick the best parts of what California is doing. We have to adopt it state by state and make it so overwhelming that eventually it turns into federal law. And that's a little bit of a lead into something that I'm going to talk about in the quickie next week. But that's all I'm going to say about that.
0: And I should note that you said pito to you. We haven't said it in a while, which means pissing in the ocean to warm it up that's right and we have a theme we do and we'll put it in here right now yeah play it I hope that got done <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too okay it's the worst acronym ever made up and we realize now it was a stupid thing to do it stands for pissing in the ocean to warm
1: it up it's time for be Torts anyway the closing thought From Jim, says, On a different topic, I now have even more admiration and respect for 99 after hearing her say she likes the Grateful Dead.
0: Thank you. I'm actually wearing a Grateful Dead shirt right now. It might have subconsciously affected my wardrobe.
1: Yeah, dancing bears and and, uh, skulls all over you.
0: Yeah. Look at you knowing what dancing bears are. Very troubling. I'm proud of you.
1: Thanks.
0: Because I said it the other day. No. Max made fun of my Crocs. Oh, my God. I got tie-dye Crocs, (laughs) and I got Grateful Dead gibbets for the holidays, and I was wearing them Max made fun of me.
1: Let's be clear that we were walking out together, and I said, oh, I didn't know it was 2002. And you knew exactly what I was talking about because Crocs just are not in style.
0: I don't, you're so wrong and I'm shocked because Crocs are very in style.
1: Okay, Mario Batali.
0: <laughs> they are. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Teenage Girls? Yeah, you are You know I have. You're telling me your kids don't wear Crocs and they're friends. They're no. truly very trendy. I'm not being facetious.
1: Okay, well I have a focus group that I'll bring this I to.
0: know that they're ugly in their own way, mm-hmm. but they're comfy and then they're cute because they're ugly
1: they're rubber they look very unsustainable
0: actually the pair i have under my desk right now they're my my work crocs because if i'm wearing like booties you Mm -hmm. know in the winter and i booties like a heeled booty Mm -hmm. you know i don't always like i sometimes I take them off because they get comfy Mm -hmm. and then if i have to go to the bathroom i don't want to put them back on Mm -hmm. so i have crocs i've had those crocs since 2006
1: so that is sustainable
0: i mean i guess it In a bad way that they didn't biodegrade, but in a good way that they're still in good condition. Okay? Okay. Let me have that.
1: I'll give everything to you.
0: Thank you. So kind. Next up, we heard from Dakota R., who said, Do you all have any tips on trying to get problematic family members to see things from mine and my partner's POV? Just to get a mild taste of what I'm working with here, my parents are very pro-Trump believe the Confederate flag is not racist and are part of the Republican working class that thinks they will make it big one day because they support Trump and people like him. Ooh,
1: there's so much here.
0: Yeah, we've had the conversation before, but there's not really a great answer.
1: We've done an episode on how to talk to a Trump supporter. We did. There's some good stuff in there, Dakota. But this is kind of next level. So you're talking about your, I assume, life partner here. Even if even if it's just somebody that you're dating, whether you're dating this person or this is your life partner, this is your partner. So this is now your chosen family. And it's a very difficult situation when you are living this life, but you're coming from a place of just zero acceptance. I mean, if you're still trying to educate people as to as to why the Confederate flag might trigger a person of color Yeah,
0: we didn't read that part, but Dakota said that their partner is a black woman and their parents they don't know why the Confederate flag is bad. So right.
1: <laughs> So our our theme here is to meet people where they are. And I don't know if it's at all possible because it's the hardest conversation to start. But to actually just clear time with no phones and as little emotion as possible and a conversation that begins with I love you and at the end of this conversation I will love you as much as I did when we started it because you're my family but this is my chosen partner we have some issues that we'd love you to see our side of and if that type of conversation can authentically happen because again, you have to then say, I understand why you don't think the Confederate flag is racist. You have to begin with that level of understanding when you're meeting somebody in that conversation and say, so here's why it makes me and my partner feel terrible is because of all of the things that it stands for. And this is our lens that we see the world through. And we would hope that you would never fly one out of respect. It's an easy ask, right? So I don't know if this person is actually flying Confederate flag or it's just like a, hey, I don't think that's racist. You know, you can have that conversation if they have one in the front yard. Like I just passed one this weekend in Virginia that had to be, I I don't even know, one of the biggest flags that I've ever seen. And I was like, hmm, wow. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm down here right now. And was I triggered driving by it? And was I like, yeah, I would love to just put a, a bundle of sticks on that person's flagpole, put fucking kerosene all over it, light it up and tell them to go fuck themselves. That's what my heart's telling me to do. But if I if, if that person was in my family, holy shit, that's a lot of guided conversation and a lot of deep breaths and a lot of yes and work.
0: I'm with you, but, you know, <laughs> we we fall on slightly opposite sides of of that because if this were my parents and I was dating anybody that, you know, actually, it doesn't matter if I was dating them. If they felt this way, I don't know that I could honestly say I will love you after. I love you the same and I'll love you the same after because that would make me lose respect and that would make me lose love. Well, Blood love is, not is love and like is
1: like and respect is respect. I, I think you can love. You can have love for people and not like them and not respect them because there's more there. There's a yeah. history, there's a family. Yeah, whatever of course. Whatever it is. It's and not, I'm not saying... it It's would, layered.
0: It, yeah, it's not like, I don't love you, I turned off a switch. But for me personally, those things are very intertwined, for better or for worse, because it definitely affects me personally and the way I feel about people because I can't always forget. Because to me, it changes the whole way I look at somebody if I know that they're... They feel a certain way, if they're bigoted, if they have even a certain belief that doesn't agree with me, which I know isn't always the right thing because everyone should have diversity of thought, but I can't always help it. So I have to like talk myself through that. But yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to approach it that way. I mean, from a different angle, if they're very into the Trump, the cult of Trump, you could look at some cult practices. They don't usually use the word deprogramming anymore because it's a little antiquated, but for expediency in this conversation and for colloquialism, deprogramming from that mindset. So using that kind of mm-hmm. approach. And that is sort of the quote unquote intervention style, what you're suggesting. But maybe have a third party moderator.
1: Right. You know, in a recent David Pakman episode, he talked about this. There was a study that recently came out where they took Fox viewers, exposed them to something like two or three weeks of only CNN for X amount of hours a day. And their mindset shifted almost automatically. Yeah. Not to say that we want everybody in a CNN mindset. That too is, you know, is, is dangerous. But there's a path and there's a journey. Point being, I think exposure and dialogue is important and why we do lean into this idea of meet people where they are because if you want them to double down and really lean into their prejudices, don't expose them to your partner. If they can begin to see your partner as a person and begin to love that person and see them as you do, that can only come from being around them. And so it's like it might be a painful exercise, but
0: you maybe- said don't expose
1: I'm saying if if you don't want them to change their views. or OK, you, so it was like right? a double negative because
0: yeah. I got confused. I thought you were saying don't expose them to your partner. No, and I was it's like, that like you, feels It's opposite. a painful
1: exercise, but you, you may want to overexpose them and not have the conversation. Right. So for a little while, just be extremely normal and don't bring any of this stuff up and just be around them and let them see the parts of the person that you yeah. love the way you do.
0: It's definitely a stepping stone, but then there's the plenty of people. I mean, we've talked about it. People who are like, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Or like, I'm not anti-Semitic, I've, I know Jewish people, I work with Jewish people. Right. Like, where, And then people are, have allowances for a person they know in their life, but they still harbor. And if you got to the root of it, they might still think that person is like a criminal or mm-hmm. a greedy miser, like whatever stereotype they can tap into. I
1: just don't think it's possible to get there without exposure. No, like, no, I, think I know. That is the very, very, like, it's the bare minimum, right? Yeah,
0: I think it is the bare minimum. But then going back to telling them... I'll love you, whatever, you know.
1: So maybe that's further in the intervention.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking about how that gives allowances to say, well, if you're still going to love me, I'm going to keep doing... Like, some relationships aren't worth saving. There are plenty of parents who shouldn't have been parents, maybe just aren't good people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there's overlap, but there could be. If your parents aren't willing to work on their biases to include your, your partner, your friends, you, then... Sometimes it's not worth saving. So sometimes it's worth having that con- almost threatening conversation of like, look, this is what it is. Sometimes you can't give in to that person who's going to keep being a racist or a bigot or homophobic. You know, I don't know. I just, we say it and I know it. it come, it's, it's a sweeping statement and it comes from a good place of meeting people where they are. And I do think, I think that's step number one. But the reason I always push back on it is because I don't want it to feel like we don't understand the nuances and the intricacies of every relationship of people with mental health issues that, you know, you can't sometimes if you have a mental health issue, if they have a mental health issue, if they have opposing beliefs, whether it's religious or political, whatever, you know, it's just I feel very passionately about not putting yourself in a situation because there are so many people who are basically prisoners in their own life because of people parents and then they finally get out and they have a life and then their parents continue to imprison them with something like that so like you don't owe your parents love if they're not treating you with love and respect
1: difficult situation and i think you're right i i really do there is a moment
0: yeah but if you want to try so all this to say obviously dakota like you're asking for advice the answer is there is no good advice because it's so specific to who you are your relationship. You know them better than we do. Are they good people at the end of the day? Some people just aren't good people.
1: So we, I think we can lay it out and, and lay the groundwork to say, assuming that there's something worth salvaging, mm-hmm. assuming that there's, there's a foundation of love and respect and a desire among all parties to remain intact as a family going forward. It begins with exposure. Mm-hmm. It continues with conversation. It elevates through learning. And then hopefully you get to a point where even if you're giving on certain areas where you're gonna concede, like, okay, this is still gonna be your thing. And and I you have a perspective, it's not mine, but I'm gonna I'm gonna allow that in order for our relationship to exist and to thrive. Just see this person that I've chosen as as a human and as a person. Yeah. There's a lot there.
0: Dakota, I'm gonna link a few podcasts in the show notes of people who were either in QAnon or really like far right groups and have gotten out and talk about that and their experience. And hopefully that can be helpful to you and listening to them maybe give you some ideas. Also our episode about how to talk to a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. And I also want to add the caveat that (laughs) my parents are not bad people who impressed me. That was not projection. (laughs) I just feel strongly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like thinking about it, someone listening like, Jesus Christ. Oh
1: man, 99's okay? got a lot. Are yeah, <laughs> you
0: okay? I'm like, <laughs> it's just something I feel passionate about because I'm an advocate for mental health. And that's such a huge, people are very traditional with family. And they're like, it's family. And I'm like, hmm, family is just who you're born into. It doesn't, right. you can have a chosen family. They could be better than your regular family. Some people are born to the wrong people and that's life. So.
1: One last thing I, I want to put out there is when you're engaged in dialogue, discourse, debate, whatever you want to call it, about very sensitive issues or subjects that you feel strongly about, but other people are very cavalier about. And I have these conversations all the time among the people I grew up with or the people that I have to do business with or what have you. Being factual in a very engaging and positive way is incredibly disarming. And let me give you an example. I have a friend who grew up pretty racist, lives in a casually racist environment still, is in a profession that wouldn't expose them to any sort of alternate thinking and definitely has one media source, right? And this person and I were talking about immigration. And so I tried to practice what I preach here and break through to this person. And by the end of the conversation, there were Green shoots of hope. So the conversation was about immigration because Fox has been obviously hammering the immigration issue. Which is, uh, if you haven't heard our episode on immigration, check it out because even though net migration into this country is lower than it's been since 2014 and the year 2000 before that, and only 247,000 people came into the country in 2021, which makes Joe Biden's record one of the best records depending on how you look at it, in terms of not letting people into this country, the prevailing narrative on Fox is that the borders are a mess and criminals are streaming across the border in the tens of thousands on an almost daily basis. It's out of control. They're taking all of our jobs and they're soaking up all of our welfare and our health care. That's quite literally the Fox narrative. So the person that I was talking to was basically just giving that back to me verbatim. And so I did practice the classic improv, yes, and, and said, yeah, the border, what a huge, huge problem. We really have to get this figured out so people have a legal pathway into this country. And on that, everybody can agree. Because typically what someone will say back to you is, you know, all these illegals coming across the border, I'm not against immigrants, but you should do it legally. So start with that same foundation. Like, yeah, we should. It's a shame that even in democratic administrations, they defunded the courts and they created this situation where we can't even see enough people that come to the border to figure out whether they're fleeing and seeking asylum or what have you. So we should restore the courts and and the balance instead of trying to like, you know, spend billions of dollars building walls and stuff like that, that people can like either fly over or get around or, you know, come through other ways. We should be thinking about like vetting people and getting into this country. They should come here legally. And then invariably it comes, well, you know, it's just that when they're here, they, they're taking up all of our jobs and our healthcare and what have you. Then you can get into the facts of the labor issue and be like, yeah, I mean, I hear you. Nothing would be more frustrating than losing a job to somebody who's undocumented, just walked across the border and doesn't speak the language. What kind of jobs are we talking about here for a second? Are you afraid that that person is going to take your job? And then the obvious answer is no. Always yes anding and always being super positive in your response to them and then hitting them back with the fact, like I can tell you in that conversation, the turning point was Social Security. They're robbing all of our our welfare and they're getting all these like fake documents to be here. I said, you know what's so funny about that? We shouldn't have anybody here with fake documents because if somebody gets in trouble or somebody needs to go through the court system or they need to buy a house, like the fact that they're running around with fake documents is like really problematic. It seems like a security risk to me. But so interesting is that did you know that those undocumented workers pay billions of dollars into Social Security and never get the benefits of it because of those same fake numbers? I mean, talk about a crazy system. But thankfully they do it because, you know, we're seeing the benefits of that because, you know, Social Security, it's just it's so fragile. Right. And then then it was like, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, they pay into Social Security and they never get the benefits of it. So documented Americans actually receive all of the benefits of their labor that they never get. So you and I are approaching this from two different perspectives. I think that they actually should get some of the benefit from that, whereas you think that they just shouldn't have those benefits available. The answer to this is actually the same. And you start to work into this into this area where they're just amazed by these facts because you're not delivering them with venom. When you deliver things with venom, it puts people with their backup. When you look like you're like, oh, that's a horrible thing to say, and how dare you you're not appreciating the fact that they have been propagandized through this cult-like mechanism that is Fox News. Even though we have to work harder. And it's so fucking frustrating that we always have to work harder because we're the ones doing the work. You have to bring people along with you and you have to meet them where they are. And if you do it in a non-defensive sort of way, you can make, you can make some progress. You can get there. But when it's your family, who knows? Anywho. And closing out the comments, by the way, is uh, the great Elena S. from Mexico who said, by the way, I hate the word Latinx. The O, ending the word Latino, is meant to include all variations of sexual identity. I believe most Latinos are uncomfortable with the term Latinx. That's too much fucking with the Spanish language. What do others of your listeners think about this? Did we talk about this on the show or just privately in the course of our work?
0: I think just offline or off mic. Yeah. We talked about it. Essentially, so the, the term Latinx came about maybe a couple years ago, I mean, I'm sure it was longer, but it gained popularity because with, to me, the rightful movement of making things inclusive of gender identity, the O in Latino is, it's, you know, male, quote unquote. So people started saying Latinx, but a lot of Latino people said, you're erasing my culture in that. So I'm not someone who is Latino, so I can't really speak to... It's not my fight to fight. What I usually tell people is, like, if you do meet somebody, you know, maybe like a young non-binary person who likes Latinx, I'm not going to take that from them. That's not my role to say, like, well, actually my other Latino friend says they don't like Latinx, so I'm not going to call you that. So, to me, it seems like it's, it's another preference of identity. However... It's not ours to use as a sweeping, you know, if you're going to talk about the Latino community, call it the Latino community.
1: And Hispanic community is also acceptable. So people have written into us about this before and we've come across it in our day jobs where it's a very small percentage, typically younger of the Latino, the greater Latino community that is advocating for Latinx. And it's a very it is a very small percentage but that's how things start. It could someday become a movement. What 99 always tells me is, you know, when in doubt, just ask. But if you're presented in in a situation where, let's say you're writing about it, you're emailing about it, you're putting together a blog or an article or what, and you're putting it out there into the universe, you can put in some mitigating language to say, and we do this at the beginning of our episodes, like we did at the beginning of our indigenous episode, for example, we're going to be referring to these people as first nations people from here on forward. It is meant to be inclusive of Aboriginal and Tory Strait Islander, but there's developing constructs around that language that make us uncomfortable being the ones that are putting it firmly forward. So you can always sort of mitigate it, but by just even by talking about it, it opens up a really good conversation. The Latin language is gendered. And not gendered in a way that we would normally associate with it in every case. So there are, like, La Mesa is the table. Like, do you do you want to take the gender identity away from the table? And it gets a little crazier and a little more nuanced than that. So when in doubt, ask. But whatever the prevailing sentiment is, and treat that person just as they would like to be treated. That's it.
0: Yeah. So we welcome others to write in about this with their preference. You might have heard us say Latinx at some point before we started having these conversations but as we always talk about language is evolving we're always learning
1: and now I'm gonna say and we're back because 99 and I just went on like a um, oh I don't know a good 60 minute diatribe <laughs> off mic
0: yeah uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for a productive one it was yeah it wasn't we weren't angry
1: I learned so much from this young woman it's incredible
0: thank you when do I stop becoming... When am, when am I an old woman? What, at what age?
1: You're always going to be a child to me, no matter what. Sorry.
0: There's going to be an age where we, we'll even out. Mm-mm. What about our friend, who was a child when you met him, but is a guy now? He's He was like 20 when you met him, and mm-hmm. he's 40 now. Is he still a child to you? No, he's a kid. He's a kid. He's a kid. Okay. He's a good kid. Okay. You're a child. I'm a child?
1: Mm-hmm. Precocious one.
0: Okay. Fine.
1: Well, why don't we? Why don't you take us over to social media?
0: Because I'm a child. I'm a child who knows how to use social.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially with this one that I recognize,
0: called <laughs> the Facebook. Yes. So Kevin G. About our episode said, "So where does this shit end? If we routinely build stadiums for sports teams, what's to stop a factory from saying that the state needs to pay for their new plant, or a private school wanting a new campus?" Actually, in a way, I wouldn't mind a plant or factory if it generated thriving wage jobs. But seriously, why should taxpayers be on the hook for rich guys play toys?
1: Agreed. You know, one of the things I didn't go far enough into because I was trying to make another point in that episode rather than just the how ridiculous it is that we finance these projects is the minimal amount of employment that it actually generates and the minimal lift that it has on surrounding projects and economic development in the area, even with respect to hospitality. Most people go to an event and they leave the event and they don't drop any money anywhere in between. But one of the studies that I read, I think I posted the article from The Atlantic, and it was quoting a study that basically said that even a full-fledged stadium, especially football, really doesn't employ more than what you would find at a mall, which is interesting because half of the games in a football stadium for example aren't even there they're on the road so it's very few times during the year that it's in full operation and then you'll have you know full-time jobs related to the team but those those jobs are already there what I found interesting and I'd love to unpack more about what Hochul was saying was that 27 million dollars a year that will pay off their piece of the puzzle over 22 years but she's saying it almost as if that $27 million is net new, like it didn't exist. Like there's going to be a $27 million additional or new. She's talking about taxes related to player salaries. Don't you already get that? She's talking about all of the food and beverage contracts that come from it and the lift in the hospitality and the people coming to travel and stay nearby, like coming down from Canada, staying in the hotels. Aren't they doing that already? Is it really a new $27 million, choco? Or is it just you accounting for it for the first time saying that there's a lift in an economic benefit because it's not from jobs? Now, a baseball stadium, on the other hand.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Can you make that argument? Has more games. Fair. More people working there around the clock. Football stadiums do have concerts. We'll give them that. Yeah. They've got arena tours and those are huge moneymakers. Yeah.
1: But in Buffalo, you're talking about a very finite window of weather. That's fair, in
0: Buffalo specifically, yeah. yeah. But it's in the summer, I mean. Yeah. So So
1: you've got not 16, you've got 8. Maybe they make the playoffs, so you've got 10, perhaps, if you've got you know, yeah. home field advantage. And then you can plug in another maximum. You talk stadium tours. I mean, there's not that many of them. Maybe there's another dozen that you can. So you're doing this for... Twenty to twenty-five days/slash nights a year.
0: That's fucking crazy.
1: It's insane.
0: Yeah, but then they pay. You know, you have to pay uh, twenty-five dollars for a Bud Light, so it all evens out.
1: I guess so. What well, I guess what I'm really also getting at ninety-nine is that I love City Field so very much.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: My Mets are so good right now, and so are yours.
0: Yes. They, we oh, co-ownership. Yes, we do. We. Fun fact: We own the Mets. Oh. You haven't told anybody. It reveal. Yeah, that's yeah. who we are. Mm-hmm.
1: Now Jim M said, "Just wow, I used to live near Salamanca. Oh, I know that very well. Back when a treaty with Seneca signed 1794 was violated by the dam flooding of Seneca land in the 60s. As a matter of fact, I believe there is a great museum on Seneca land that I visited that talks all about the the dam construction." and how it had flooded out, not just Seneca land, but uh, some other tribes as well, which is not an unusual story, by the way. All throughout the country, you can look at a period when we were uh, building a tremendous number of dams and flooding out local poor populations. Tennessee Valley Authority, for example, I'm not sure if that had any encroachment on native territory at the time, but it did flood out a significant part of the valley that had multi-generational settlers there that were just flooded out in an instant. In the case of of Seneca, if I'm not mistaken, people died in that flood because they just didn't give enough warning to people to move off the land. I mean, really, really fucking tragic. Anyway, let's talk about Norma B., who said, this show, oh my God, horrible. Oh no, she hates our show. Oh, not your show, but what these fuckers have done. I agree. Good one. And Nathan E. said, this episode blew my fucking mind. The multi-layered tomfuckery at play here is incredible. The elites run the show, period. F-K-H indeed. That'll be a regional hashtag for us, by the way.
0: And then Kyle C. said, Holy shit, Max, love the fucking passion. You had my blood pressure getting up with this shit, lol.
1: Talk about indigenous issues and that's where I'll get.
0: Then John C. said, How on earth does this not A. make the news and B. make anyone's blood not boil? What the fuck is wrong with us? I grew up in Montana. I've I've seen exactly what a great fucking job the feds have done for the nations in the West. I'm always a bit thunderstruck by UNFTR episodes, but this one sucked. Fuck these fucking bastards. FKH. Hmm.
1: Yeah, different relationship out West. It's a very, very different story. And I admit that I have a bias toward um, the New York tribes just because, you know, it's where I live and it's where I reported for years. So
0: I would say it's less of a bias and more of an expertise. There. Just to exonerate you a little bit.
1: Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of our favorites, Maria from Puerto Rico, said that looks like she and her partner were in the news yesterday. They covered our protest to keep our beaches public, free and accessible and protected from illegal and unscrupulous development, gentrification, privatization. And she sent a photo wearing her unfucking the Republic shirt that's caught on the news. Hell yeah. Yeah.
0: We're going to have to post that somewhere.
1: And that is it for the Facebooks. So what's happening on Twitter?
0: Yeah. So D Hasilius said, the midweek show notes have grown on me. It's like a relaxed victory lap. (laughs) The men at work closing gave me a heartfelt laugh. Thanks to the whole UNFTR team for unfucking complicated stuff in an easy to understand way.
1: Yeah, I should say that Manny Faces has inserted a couple things over the last couple of weeks, uh, unbeknownst to us at the end, that have uh, made me made me laugh out loud. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. And Joe Lang 8 said, Excellent episode. I feel better informed about this state fuckery against Seneca and was nearly killed by Max getting his poop in a group at the end of the episode. Is that a real phrase or just a weird Maxism? I was totally unprepared. I say it all the time. You do. Is that not a thing?
0: I can't. Instead
1: of get your shit together, get your poop in a group. I can't remember
0: if I've heard it before you, but you say it so often that I'm used to it. But yeah, I'd say it's just like the safer work version of. Getting your shit together. You also like getting your ducks in a row. You say that sometimes as well.
1: I don't feel like I say that. Nearly no, not as, as much. As poop no, it no. It. you do. And also, I also get a lot of weird looks, which I think is just from being a dad for so long. As I, I say, I go, I'm going potty.
0: Yes, you do. And
1: I don't think that's funny. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like, oh, I gotta go potty. Like I, I don't even hear it anymore. But I get weird looks every time I say it.
0: Mm, I just am used to it. There's a lot of things that Max says that. You just get used to. My roommate, sorry, this just reminded me. My roommate told me that I say I wouldn't know them if I fell over them very often. Really? Like an old Jewish woman. Yes. That's me. That's an Alta like, thing to say. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't know them if I fell over them. And I was, She she said it one day. It was like, you say that all the time. And I was like, I do? Huh. I had no idea, but apparently that's a 99-ism.
1: Oh, I like that. <laughs> uh, so Super Eliza or Super Elisa FFF said, thank you for this episode. Like probably most New York state residents. (laughs) I had no idea about any of this. Good. Glad we could illuminate that.
0: And then Mike J.J. Modano said, thank you. Awesome episode. Thank you for listening. And Carl Dockstetter said, my hometown Buffalo deserves a great public investment. Helping an oil and gas billionaire by raiding the Seneca Nation funds is not the way. Building off of critical journalism from Let's Talk Native, this story explains what the real cost of the new Bills stadium will be.
1: Yes, and again, if you haven't checked out John Kane's Let's Talk Native show and this type of work resonates with you, please do.
0: Ken Tukikit said, What do you get when you mix sports washing and anti-Indigenous legislation and culture, a brand new stadium for the Bills funded by taxpayer dollars?
1: Damn straight. And one bald mutter said, The bald man's front name is Peter Garrett. Was actually an Australian MP for a while. Holy shit. You guys should check it out. I have no idea why I would know that. Uh, bald People Rock. Just saying. I agree with that. And I'm certainly not going to make any alopecia jokes right now.
0: Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Uh, that was a Will Smith reference for for anyone. For who, anyone that hasn't Chris been alive. Chris rock, right. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: just, I didn't want people to think you were weirdly like
1: calling out alopecia. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder if there are any books... Uh, now I'm just fascinated by Peter Garrett. I, I I'm have to sure. Check I'm yeah. sure there are. Uh, and over on Instagram, Sam E. said, the most recent episode had my jaw on the floor. The persistence of such fuckery is appalling. It underscores the importance of supporting local journalism. Yes, indeed.
0: He wants you to keep an eye on your blood pressure as well.
1: Yeah, blood pressure is okay.
0: I told... I told Worry about
1: my voice every once in a while.
0: I told them that I would... Watch your health, and if you did die, weekend at Bernie's you. That's what I told Sam. Yeah, I'm
1: not going anywhere.
0: I don't know how it would work, but I'd figure it out.
1: Mm, I'm less concerned about my health and more concerned about uh, my vocal cords at this point because I, I felt like I was blowing them out in that episode. and. Uh,
0: yeah, I had to turn the levels down a little bit. Yeah, my apologies. <laughs> apologize to Manny. He's the one who's got to fix it. Oh, that's true, too.
1: Sorry, Manny. Before we run through donations, uh, we did have something on Substack. What do we have there?
0: Yeah, some unfucked Kiwi said, I just listened to this and... No, nope, holy... no,
1: no. You need to do this in an accent. Go ahead.
0: <sighs> I can't. No, I can't. I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, harness my inner Brett and Jemaine from Flight of the Concords, but I just don't think I can get there. Yeah. But they said, I just listened to this and holy fucking tits town. That is so fucked. I'm a Kiwi living in Australia and the level of fuckery you highlighted is heartbreaking. You should let that sink in. Someone living in Australia... A country that has abundant casual racism and an indefensible track record on deal with, well, anyone who isn't white, really, was totally taken aback by how aggressive, blatant, and corrupt things are for your indigenous people. Oh, and Max, if you want to do a New Zealand accent, stick with the word definitely and say it definitely, and say it quick and as monotone as you're able to do it.
1: Definitely. Because
0: that's how we fucking roll in... Aotearoa? Aotearoa? That's what I'm going with. Seriously, keep up the amazing work definitely there's a there's a flight of the concords uh i think it's one of the first episodes where brett meets this girl and she's like i like your british accent and he's like new zealand and she's like what's your name and he's like brit and she's like brit and he's like brit and she's like brit she's like Brittany? Like, <laughs> and she, he's like brit i'm in a band cool what's your name again brit 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 Brit, like, like Britney? Uh, no, um, B-R-E-T. Oh, Brett. Yeah. It just sounds like Brit. I like your English accent. New Zealand. Oh, from New Zealand. Brit. Brit. Yeah.
1: Flight of the Concords is a gem.
0: They're my favorite. I love them so much. Yeah, they're wonderful.
1: So now let's uh, check out coffee donations and thank the people who are funding this show. I am done, CT, is now a member of the show, discovered UNFTR last week, and I am close to being caught up.
0: Oso Blanco is now a member and said great trio of unfuckery to listen to when I'm on the move and re-listen to when I'm sitting still.
1: Thank you, White Bear. G. Wookie of Ohio is now a member. Like most people, the last couple of years have been trying for me. I've been in a rough place losing both my parents. Wow. And watching my perception of the world change thanks to the fuckery of U.S. politics and both parties. Thanks to Max. 99 and Manny for everything.
0: Lee Smoo bought three coffees? I think that's how you would say it. Sending some coffee your way for 99's liberal use of my favorite word and calling Max Dad. I laughed until crying and made my day a little bit lighter. Thank you for all you do, and I hope to be able to support you all more in the future.
1: Dita K bought us three coffees, as did Bookstore Kim, who said she's been absent for a bit. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming, but back for more mostly because I missed you, Max. 99 and Manny.
0: We missed you too, Kim. No doubt. Then Jerry H. bought a coffee, said thank you to Max 99 and Manny for assembling the building blocks of how we got here and somehow have to unfuck this republic.
1: And Maria from Puerto Rico bought us a coffee, said she would pay to see my fuckboy hair. Hmm. Not gonna happen. And, you know why it's not gonna happen? Because I don't have fuckboy hair.
0: What, it, what would you call it?
1: I, I I mean, listen, I don't have a lot of great assets
0: there's no I'm not my hair I'm not demeaning uh, your hair it's, it's
1: my hair's pretty tight it's some pretty good lettuce I that's know. all I'm saying I'm,
0: I didn't say and that there's nothing
1: fuck boy about it you
0: didn't even know what it meant
1: I still don't know what it means but I know it's not that it's, 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 it's good coif okay tight lettuce
0: not better than my hair though
1: and now some closing thoughts remember we asked Bobby McDee to rewrite the message on Lady Liberty's tablet and he delivered, saying, I got it done. It was a lot harder than I expected, <laughs> said the actress to the bishop. <laughs> and for a while, I was stumped. I spent much of yesterday mulling it over, feeling the fear. But late last night, I had a moment of inspiration. As you know, the poem on the Statue of Liberty is a sonnet called The New Colossus. So, The New Colossal Fuck-Up, a sonnet on U.S. immigration.
0: No, it's a sonnet on U.S. Immigrac- immigrac- racism. Oh, that's and, really good. And Bobby said this should become a new word as it encapsulates the U.S. and most of the world's policy on immigration.
1: Immigracism.
0: Immigracism. Wow, that's
1: great. Uh, Manny, if uh, it's okay with you, can we get a little bit of patriotic music here? Now, here we go. Here is our new unfucking inscription for the base of the Statue of Liberty Liberty came from afar and raised high her light showing those who were lost the way through the night. Her flame was a beacon to those who sought hope, and many found refuge within her broad scope. They braved the storms of the unsettled sea, seduced by the song of the land of the free. They fled from fear, from war, and from death to the arms of America, but when they got here, they met a voice saying, we're full, and a lamp hanging low. Unless your skin is white like the snow, we do not want your kind or your creed, as many among us despise your breed. Do not send me your tired or your tempest tossed. Go back where you came from. Fuck off. Get lost.
0: Well, I loved that from Bobby.
1: I love all things Bobby McDee. Great stuff. Love your art, Bobby. Unfuckers, thank you for tuning in. 99, as always, thank you for compiling all of these notes and inspiring so much of the conversation here. Manny, I thank you behind the glass for the magic that you bring to the table.
0: Ira Glass has him.
1: No, no, Ira Glass retired, right? Gone? Yeah,
0: but I don't know what he's doing. Could be. Could
1: be hanging out with Manny.
0: I I thought maybe kidnapped for his talent.
1: Maybe. So, Unfuckers, we'll catch you next week with a quickie the week after for a special collaborative episode, and the week after that with another special collaborative episode. Until then, catch you on the flip side.
0: Bye, cunts. Did I get you again? Damn it. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into today. Y'all know I have had a crazy uh, season um, between the book tour and speaking and travel and all that kind of stuff. I am actually using this priority planner worksheet myself. So you know I'm a hyper planner and I do love to have my ducks in a row. You can easily prioritize what's going on and, um, and then get your poop in a group. Cause that's what we want to do right <laughs> we all want our poop in a group